Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible sex educator, speaker, and therapist, Dr. Liz Powell. Hello, Liz, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about loving yourself instead of punishing yourself. And for those that don't know, Dr. Liz Powell is a relationship coach, sex educator, and licensed psychologist helping couples and singles develop self-confidence and authenticity in their relationships. They believe that great sex can change the world, and they are on a mission to help others have more meaningful, pleasurable relationships in their life, work, and the bedroom. Dr. Liz has spoken on many stages internationally, including the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists Annual Conference, the Guelph Sexuality Conference, and the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Summit. They have also had multiple media appearances, including in Cosmopolitan and Playboy. Their book, Building Open Relationships, is the newest way they are spreading the great sex word. How are you doing today, Liz? Uh, you know, for, for pandemic times, I'm doing all right. So thanks so much for coming on and taking time out of your busy schedule to hop on the show. And my first question is about your slogan, which is that you say that great sex can change the world. So I have to ask, how so? You know, I think that there's the surface level of if people were able to have the kind of sex that they want, if people were having fulfilling and joyful sex lives, that that would be meaningful for a lot of us. But on a deeper level, the reason I believe this is because the skills you need in order to have great sex are the same skills that you need in order to be a good friend or a good coworker or a good family member. Having great sex is about things like communication. It's about things like boundaries and about knowing yourself, about being honest about what you want and need and about figuring out how you and someone else can come to a place where both of you are getting your needs met. If we were able to apply those skills throughout the entirety of our lives, I think the world would be much better for all of us. So it's less that like great sex will change the world and more that the path towards having great sex is one we should all be walking because it's strengthening so many communication skills and self-awareness and empathy and consent and all these really wonderful things that will change all the way we interact with each other in the world. Yeah. You know, the thing that I found in working with folks around a variety of issues for the last several years is that people want to learn how to have great sex. And if what we can teach them along the way is how to be great communicators, how to be really good listeners, how to be attentive to the people that they're with, that's a way to help make these changes in the world. People don't tend to be as attracted to classes of how to be more attentive to other people's needs. That's not a, <laughs> a, as fun of a topic. A lot of people don't want to spend their free time thinking about how to be attentive to others. If you offer a class on emotional intelligence, most people are going to be like, eh, I'm probably fine. But if we frame it as like, here's how you have really great sex, and we help them pick up those tools towards that goal, it's a much better way to get people on board with picking these things up for the rest of their lives. Mm, very tricky you have there. So it's almost like sex sells, and then you almost trick people like to come into the workshop, and then they learn about communication, about themselves. Absolutely. I mean, my Dirty Talk class is, in essence, a communication class. We just use a lot of filthy words when we do it. That's wonderful. So I love your attitude, and I love the work that you do in the world. And I'm curious... You did mention people want to learn how to have great sex. And I think, you know, a lot of people do want their sex life to be really great. But there's still a lot of shame and sex negativity in our world. And I wonder about the kind of resistance that you experience. You're very passionate about building a sex positive world. You're very vocal about 
being genderqueer and how we need to be more welcoming of all genders. But we still live in a sex-negative culture. There are still people that many would describe as homophobic, transphobic, and still many people feel strongly. I just saw this rather inflammatory social media post today. I feel very strongly about two sexes and two genders. So when you talk about changing the world, is this an uphill battle that you feel that you're fighting? Yeah, I think, you know, particularly recently, there has been a lot more transphobia kind of flaring up uh, in the public sphere. And I think that's due in no small part to very public support of transphobic ideas and talking points by people like J.K. Rowling. And it's tough. You know, I have made a decision to be very out and very public about who I am and what I do. A joke I tell in a lot of my classes is that my mother is already as ashamed of me as she's ever going to be. So... (laughs) Like, I've already hit that limit. There's no more shame available for her to have, so I might as well do it. I work for myself, so I'm not going to lose my job as a result of being out and open about who I am. There's just not a lot that people can structurally do to me for being out about who I am. However, there's still a lot of shit that I get. It is really hard being a a trans non-binary person on the internet these days because... Mm. Transphobes are so excited to hunt us down and ruin our days. They just freaking love dogpiling on trans and non-binary people and telling them that they're wrong about themselves or that somehow me being who I am is harming women or misogyny. It's rough. It's exhausting. Uh, and it's scary and it's heartbreaking, particularly because now there are a lot of legal pushes to make it harder to access trans health care, to make it harder to be recognized as the gender that you are, to make it harder for people to access basic services, even like bathrooms. You know, in the United Kingdom, they just recently had a court judgment that effectively banned the use of puberty blockers in trans youth. Puberty blockers have been used for decades with kids who have precocious puberty. And they've also been one of the most effective ways of stopping suicidality in trans teens. When we give people the ability to delay their body's permanent changes until they can figure out what they want to do, we give them so much more power to figure out how they're going to move through this world. One of the harder things about being trans is that if you've gone through, you know, cisgender puberty, your body has done a bunch of shit that you then have to figure out how you're going to change it if you want to change it. Mm-hmm. You know, I currently wrestle a lot with, do I want top surgery? Do I want to have my breasts removed? You know, in my ideal world, I would wish that we have modular body parts because it's not that I like always don't want my breasts. It's that I want to be able to clip them off on days that I don't and then like clip them back on on days that I do. I want to be able to like clip on a dick for days that I want a dick and like clip it off on days that I don't. But because we don't have that world, I have to make decisions about permanent changes that are irreversible. If I'd been able to delay puberty, if I'd been in a a time and in a household and in a community where I could recognize that I was a non-binary and delay puberty and make decisions about what would happen to my body, I'd be in a very different place than I am now as someone who has a body that went through irreversible changes that I now have to figure out whether I want to do something about them. And I think the challenge these days is that people who are transphobes don't believe anything that trans people say unless those trans people are reinforcing their own talking points. They point to people who detransition. Detransitioners are a tiny, tiny percentage of people who are trans. And I would much rather we have a world where people try out being trans for a little bit and then realize that they're cis than the world we currently have where as many as half of trans people attempt suicide because it is such a hostile world to people who are not cisgender. When it comes to sex positivity, there have been some good cultural movements toward creating more sex positivity, towards incorporating understandings of pleasure in the way that we talk about sex, not just diseases and pregnancy. There's been a movement towards acceptance of people who are queer of a variety of different kinds. And I think that overall, as Martin Luther King always said, you know, the, the arc of history bends towards justice, but it's, it's hard when you're in the middle of it. It's hard to be in a place where there are so many people who are willing to vocally tell you that they think that you are mentally ill 
or that you deserve to be tortured into not being what you are. It's tough. I'm doing it because it's important to me. I'm doing it because I believe in it. It's hard. Wow. So first of all, thank you for both sharing your story and sharing your struggles and acknowledging in your words that it's rough, exhausting, scary, and heartbreaking. And it is true that there is some increasing acceptance in pockets. Like it was a big deal when President-elect Joe Biden, I think was like the first person to mention trans people in a speech. But still the stats are also heartbreaking, the increased rate of suicide, increased rate of violence, and then of course the hate that people receive online and offline. And I want to tie kind of those struggles into our topic for today, which is love yourself rather than punishing yourself. Because for many people, we are our own worst critic. And I often wonder like where this critic comes from. And if you're a type of person that society has marginalized for a long time, it's very easy to internalize that marginalization. And you mentioned that your mom is as ashamed of you as, as she could ever be. And I can imagine it's very challenging to not internalize that sense of shame. So we can internalize judgments from our parents and from society and end up punishing ourselves over it. So huge topic. So my first question is, where does the inner critic come from? I think that there are a lot of theories or ideas about that. One that I think often isn't mentioned as much as it maybe should be is capitalism. You know, capitalism is a system that is designed to turn everyone within it who's not at the very top into the most productive workers they can possibly be. And productive workers are ones who go along with the grain, who fit in, who are the way they're expected to be, who don't ask questions, who get things right, who don't struggle. So if you're disabled, you're not a good worker. If you are someone who needs accommodations because you have ADHD, you're not a good worker. If you are someone who is struggling to pick something up, you're not a good worker. I think the way that our educational system is structured reinforces a lot of capitalistic values about productivity, about how we show up in terms of what we're judged on and what we're evaluated on. I think that for most of us, the majority of our lives and the way that our culture is structured as a whole is about maintaining these cis-hetero-patriarchal ableist standards about who is valid and who is worthy. And to get to the top of that rung, you have to be as close to a rich, white, straight, abled man, generally who is Christian, as you possibly can be. And that's that's kind of how I think a lot of this starts. The things that we criticize people for a lot, particularly when they're young, are the things that make them disruptive to those systems, the things that make them more challenging to control, more challenging to extract labor from. I think too that, you know, this is a culture that has created wide-reaching trauma in all of us in intergenerational ways. My mom's parents were born and lived through the Great Depression when they were very young. That's not very far back. As a result of their having been through the Great Depression, they hid money all over their house. So when they died, my mom had to search the whole house to try to find wherever they had hidden money or guns and hope that she found it all. But there's more than just that within that trauma. So much of that trauma also bleeds into the ways that we try to force those following us to follow the path that we were forced to follow. So we can see this in things like the training of physicians. Medical doctors training, there are so many elements of it that research shows are actually terrible for patient outcomes and for learning. But because previous generations were required to do it, and because it's hard, and it's a hard thing to be a doctor, so you need to get through the hard stuff, we continue having people do 36, 48-hour shifts, even when we know that that increases the rate of physician error, even when we know that that decreases patient care. There are all of these systems of trauma that are about perpetuating what we experienced, about telling other people that they shouldn't ask for so much, 
when I see a lot of older generations complain online about how millennials expect their bosses to care about their lives. It's fascinating that that's framed as a terrible thing, (laughs) that it would be unusual or not okay to expect that the person to whom you answer on a daily basis cares about your life. There's so much trauma that we perpetuate throughout all of these systems that is related to capitalism, that is related to curiarchy. And it makes sense that we would then internalize those same systems as ways to try to keep ourselves in line, as ways to try to mold ourselves to be what we think we need to be. And I think when we're young, it probably comes from a place of wanting to get the approval and affection of the people who are most important in our lives. You know, I joke about my mom being as ashamed of me as she can be, but that has been a lifelong abusive relationship for me. You know, my entire life has been about the ways in which I haven't been good enough for my mother, the ways in which everything in my life is about her and a reflection on her, the ways that I spent the majority of my life until I turned about 16 or 17, making almost every decision in alignment with trying to be good enough that maybe she would see me and love me. That's the context from which I grew. A lot of the things that I know now about myself make it clear why I struggled in some ways and perhaps why she struggled. You know, I've learned within the last few years that I have ADHD. When I look back, understanding what ADHD is, it's absolutely freaking obvious that I had ADHD as a child. But because I was read as a girl and it was the late 80s, early 90s, and my brother was the problem child and I was the golden child, there was no effort made to figure out why it was that every single major paper I ever had, I was doing the day before it was due. It was because I was lazy and a procrastinator and I wasn't doing things right. My room was messy because I didn't care enough and I didn't understand the problems with that and I needed to just work harder. I think that so much of where these things come from is about the ways that we place our understandings and expectations on others and then the ways that we try to fix ourselves to be what other people want. I talk about this a lot in terms of romantic relationships as how in early dating or later on in relationships, we're trying to make sure that a relationship doesn't end. We'll often find ourselves like cutting off pieces of ourselves to fit with someone else, right? We want to like be the puzzle piece that fits with them. So if we can just shave off these edges and round out this corner, maybe it'll fit. But there are losses within that that we experience. There are ways in which we harm ourselves so that we can fit in. And for me and for a lot of people that I work with, and I think even on a larger cultural level, particularly among my generation and the one following me, there is a movement now towards trying to figure out, like, how do we stop harming ourselves to be what other people want? How do we move towards wholeness and self-love and acceptance And finding the people who see us as we are and love us as we are, rather than trying to be the person other people want of us. Wow. Okay. So there's some like very huge ships that have been going for quite a while that like we need to turn around, right? So in terms of where does our inner critic come from? So one thing I heard from you is that there are systems that evaluate us. Our education system evaluates us. And capitalism evaluates us to a certain standard. And when we don't live up to that standard, we don't measure up to that standard, then we get this internal judgment on ourselves. And then you also mentioned that there are systems that perpetuate this trauma. There are entire structures in place in our society that are based on certain assumptions, based on certain standards. And then a lot of people have this mindset that like, I suffered, so so should you, (laughs) right? Yeah. I even recently had a guest who talked about her father. She's like, it's clear to us now that he had PSD, but back in the day, there wasn't even a word for that. I mean, they didn't have that that diagnosis. So there's all sorts of like past, you know, misunderstandings that continue to perpetuate ignorance and even prejudice today. Yeah. So those are all the kind of places where this inner critic comes from. And you really... You've set up some big behemoths here. So I'm wondering what we're going to do about them. So when we talk about internalized judgment and shame from others that need us to be a certain way, from systems that need us to be a certain way, 
how do we not internalize these systems? Like, I'm curious if from your perspective, it's a matter of shielding, like putting a barrier up to like the hate you might get from somebody else. Or if it's a matter of taking it in and digesting it and turning it and transforming it into something more serving. I think it's a combination of both of those. I think there's an element of, I don't think any of us necessarily gets to escape the enculturation we we receive about a lot of these things. We may have it pressed upon us to greater or lesser degrees, but we're all swimming around in the same culture regardless. So I think there has to be an element of us noticing it and making a choice to unpack it within ourselves so that we can at least hopefully move towards perpetuating it less ourselves. I think there's also an element of figuring out how that shows up for you and finding an in yourself an ability to have acceptance and forgiveness and grace for what we have done in the past. I think for a lot of people, when we recognize ways that we have harmed ourselves or or punished ourselves in the past, it's really easy to get into a space of punishing ourselves for punishing ourselves or getting into a space of like noticing every time we fall back into old patterns and punishing ourselves for that. And it comes from this place of like wanting to change and wanting to be different, but it's still just more punishment. And a lot of what I encourage folks to do is to find forgiveness and grace for themselves. You know, Brene Brown in her writing talks frequently about everyone is doing the best they can with the tools that they have. That includes you. If you look back at things that you've done that you don't feel good about now, you can work towards changing them and you were doing the best you could with the tools that you had. Coming from your current lens and beating yourself up about it isn't necessarily going to be helpful. What might be more helpful is figuring out what were the tools that led to those choices? What were the resources that you still need in order to not make those same choices again? How can we find a place of accepting where we've been, accepting that those choices were what we were able to access at that time and make different decisions moving forward. A lot of us get stuck in this place of focusing on where we've fallen behind, even when what we're trying to do is practice self-love, right? It's so much easier to notice the ways that we've failed and to highlight the ways we've not lived up to what we hope for. And I think it's more helpful to notice those, accept them, give yourself grace, and then figure out what you're going to do moving forward. I love that Brene Brown quote. Everyone is doing the best they can with the tools that they have. And I love these values that you're presenting, acceptance and forgiveness and grace. Because when I'm hearing you talk about, well, you know, we do have these internalized patterns and whether we like it or not, perhaps even before we could speak, our parents and society was putting these patterns into our brains that perhaps right now are no longer serving us. So there has to be some level of of working through and beyond them. And when we talk about loving ourselves and not punishing ourselves, I'm thinking about the chicken and the egg and which comes first. So I'm curious about where you think our priorities should lie or where you think, what step do you think is first? Do we want to focus on silencing our inner critic or do we want to focus on cultivating self-love? I think a lot of my perspective on this is shaped by something that I learned in my training as a therapist, which is when people have coping mechanisms that they're using that are not working well for them, it's not usually helpful to just take those away without building in a different coping mechanism first. Mm. The self-critic that we have is fulfilling some role for us. Something I've heard multiple clients say when we're working through issues of particularly anxiety and self-judgment is that one of the stories that piece of them tells them is that it is because of the anxiety or the self-judgment that they succeed. That without that feeling, without that inner critic, they would fail. And so in order for us to let go of that tool, we have to find for them a different tool, something else, some other kind of resource that can help them feel success, that can help them experience what they are doing well. Most of the people who tell me that story is coming up for them 
are people who are already succeeding in a multitude of different ways. But what they see is the few failures that they have. When we focus on celebration, when we focus on gratitude, when we focus on what is going well, when we focus on listening to ourselves and honoring what is true and honoring our own capacity, you know, saying no when we need to, saying that we can't do something. And we focus on that and we pay attention to that. That helps build that tool that can replace this inner critic. It helps to show us the successes that come from these gentler and kinder ways of being that don't rely on this harsh, punitive approach to ourselves. I think unpacking the inner critic is important. And I think until we have something that we've strengthened to help take the place of it, it's going to be hard for us to let go of it altogether. In general, the more resourced we are, the easier it is for us to turn towards these healthier ways of being, to turn towards listening to ourselves, listening to our hearts and our bodies and our capacity, honoring our own limits, honoring our own boundaries, being truthful with others about what we can and can't do. So in order for us to maintain that when our resources aren't as rich, it's helpful to practice it. It's helpful to build up those resources for ourselves, to take a good look at what is helping build up our resources now, what is draining our resources now, how can we start making choices towards supporting ourselves as much as possible and being as resourced as we can so that it is easier to make these more healthful decisions. That's such an important insight you have there that we could easily add extra judgment onto our inner critic that it's there and we don't want it. But you mentioned build a new tool to replace the inner critic. So we focus on not silencing the inner critic, but making it so that we don't even need it anymore. And I also know a lot of people who are like, you know, type A personalities. They work in the corporate world, very fast paced. And I do believe that the anxiety that they feel, the same feeling of not being able to rest for five minutes is actually what is propelling them towards success. And there can be some truth to that because our corporate structures right now are set up to reward the people who damage themselves the most. The more you are willing to sacrifice towards the success of a company, the more you're likely to be rewarded. And that's a problem. And it's a problem that can best be addressed by encouraging people in positions of relative power to start taking up these ways of honoring the needs and the limits of others. There was one company I was reading about who their vacation policy used to be, I believe it's a tech company, their vacation policy used to be, you can take as much vacation as you want to. And what they found with that policy is that no one would take any vacation because they were worried about taking too much and they were worried about missing certain deadlines or about teams not being able to function with them. So they shifted the policy to say that you still get unlimited vacation. However, you are required to take a minimum of 20 days per year. And you can do that however you want. You can do it Fridays for several of the weeks of the year. You can do whatever it is that works for you, but you're required to take at least 20 days. And what they found with that was that workers were far more happy. They were more satisfied. They were actually living a better work-life balance. They were able to do better work. They were more inspired, more creative. But it took the people at the top recognizing the structural issue and addressing it in a way that made it clear what their values actually were. And I think that with these folks who are high achievers, who are type A, right, it's not necessarily the anxiety that is propelling them to the top. It is their willingness to sacrifice themselves for the company. And that's worth exploring. It's worth exploring, like, what company is worth that? If you continue to drive yourself to the ground for these companies, what are they going to give for you? That company may be legally a person per the Supreme Court, but they're not going to come to your deathbed at the hospital. So I think this is another element of this cultural shift is for all of us to continue reminding each other where our priorities lie and pointing out, like, who are we serving with this? Who benefits from us harming ourselves in these ways? Absolutely. That's my experience, too. I know lots of people who have, in theory, unlimited time off and they never take it. 
And if they take a day or two here and there, they feel guilty and then they feel like they're falling behind and then they come back and they get even more overwhelmed than they were before. Yeah. And you mentioned the person who sacrifices themselves to the company and it reminds me of the type of person who is a little lacking in self-love. They have a little bit of porous boundaries. They're not as comfortable expressing what they want and setting up boundaries in order to just give self-love to themselves. And I was wondering if you could give our listeners like a more concrete idea of what self-love looks like and maybe some steps that someone can take to bring more self-love into their lives. Earlier, you mentioned celebration, gratitude, and focus on what is going well, which I really enjoyed. I think there are a lot of options here. You know, one thing I think we're going to talk about is that I'm offering a course around New Year's this year going into 2021 that is really focused on building up these skills. An easy way to think about this is imagine you are a three-year-old. How would you talk about the things that you're doing? Right? When a three-year-old scribbles in crayon on a coloring page, they come up and show you as though they have just created the world's greatest masterpiece. Right? Mm -hmm. They will tell you that they are an amazing singer. They will brag about how many letters they know. They are happy to share every accomplishment, even if they are accomplishments that folks at our age would view as small or minimal or not up to some kind of other standard. What if you did that for yourself instead? (laughs) What if you celebrated the fact that you actually folded your laundry this time instead of just leaving it in a clean pile? What if we celebrated loading the dishwasher and running it? What if we celebrated changing into clothes that are not pajamas to get your work done today? What if we found ways to highlight each of the small things that we do as achievements, even if what we feel like is they're the things we just should be doing. The trap of should is fascinating because there are so many things that people won't celebrate because it's what they should be doing. But like the farther out you go on that, there's like so little that gets to be celebrated because almost anything could be lumped onto a should, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I should be working out at least five times a week. So if I work out three, I can't celebrate that because it should be five. And if I work out five, I probably should have pushed harder in each of those workouts. And if I was pushing hard in those and I still feel okay, I probably should have done six. And I should be doing this instead. Like should is never ending. We see this a lot with diet culture as well, right? That you should always be thinner or fitter or whatever. And so you can't take that vacation now. You can't take that photo now. You can't get that dress now. Because if you just lose 10 more pounds, it'll be so much better. Do it today. If there's nothing that coronavirus has taught us other than the fragility of our lives, how short they are, how quickly they can end, then we need to learn that lesson. We need to learn that on some days, getting out of your bed is an accomplishment worthy of praise. On some days, doing your laundry is spectacular because it can feel like a Herculean feat. You know, turning off the TV for just a few minutes earlier than you would have, so you get to bed a little bit earlier. Celebrate that. Mm -hmm. Try being a three-year-old who gets to celebrate everything in their world, and nobody tells them that they're being too braggy or taking up too much space or that that's not that special. If you would never tell a three-year-old not to celebrate it, then you also get to celebrate it. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I even recently saw this tweet and it basically said, hey, I noticed a lot of you are listing your accomplishments in 2020, but just making it through is a huge accomplishment because it's such an unprecedented and challenging time. Just being able to get up and do what you need to do to survive and eat and sleep enough and maintain a sense of order around the house, like just making it through the day is an extraordinary accomplishment. Yeah, particularly this year. You know, the thing about the coronavirus pandemic, particularly for those of us in the States, is that we've essentially been left to die and left to starve and left to fall into poverty by a government that would rather enrich the richest among us. If you are still alive, you've accomplished something. If you have helped anyone in your world feel loved this year, you've accomplished something. If you have had any moment this year where you were able to appreciate something beautiful or you were able to share a good laugh or you were able to learn something about yourself, 
you've accomplished a lot this year. This is a year where we are all in constant trauma and in a constant trauma that is being made worse by a government that is happy to have us all flounder. The utter slap in the face that is a $1,200 check to last nine or 10 months of pandemic and then the offer of a perhaps $600 check to do another who knows how long, it is horrifying how this year has been. It is horrifying to be living in a world where breathing is what can kill you. So if you're here and you're doing anything, including listening to a podcast, including (laughs) talking to a friend, you've done an amazing job this year. I love your both like acceptance of the really challenging reality that we're in, but the additional encouragement that any small action that we've done for the benefit of ourselves or the benefit of others is an action to be celebrated, an action to rejoice in. Yeah, I mean, we're we're recording this on December 17th and December 21st is the solstice. For me, you know, I'm kind of witchy. And one of the things that I like to do at the solstice is look back on the year and figure out what can I be grateful for from this year? And sometimes that gratitude is for hard lessons. Sometimes that gratitude is for caring and support that came from others. Sometimes it's gratitude for the fact that I'm still here, even though so many factors make that harder and harder each day. I think it's helpful for all of us to find those moments that we can take a step back and recognize that the toxic hustle culture that's telling us that we should have finished our novel in 2020 is completely out of touch with the reality of surviving a trauma. You've been barraged for months and months. Everything that you have that has been any moment of joy or pleasure or even if it's just a moment of you saying no to something and taking care of yourself, like that is worth it. That is worth you paying attention to. And that is worth you continuing to honor yourself for. Because there is so little about this world that is set up to encourage you to make the decisions that are right for you. We have to take a step back and recognize the toxic hustle culture is out of touch with the reality of surviving trauma. And it's true. I mean, the the topic of like the continuous need to do things keeps coming up with when I'm speaking to you. And I'm just imagining someone's self-love is taking a bath or (laughs) just slowing down and feeling okay with what is and being with oneself and not doing anything that society dubs as being productive. Yeah. You know, we... We live in a time in particular where there has been such a backslide from the rights that were fought for with the labor organizing movement. The 40-hour work week was not intended to be a starting point upon which you build. The 40-hour work week was intended to be a maximum amount that you work because you need to be able to have a life that is not beholden to productivity and to companies and to monetization. And with digital culture and, you know, app-based work and people who are doing 3,000 different side gigs these years, so few people have time that is not about maximization and getting as much as they can. And it's because the work week protections that we're about maintaining our time for ourselves have eroded. It's because the protections of the minimum wage, which when it was instituted, was intended to be a living wage, has been eroded. It's because we're living in a place and a time where everything around us tells us to squeeze everything we possibly can out of every single minute, particularly oriented towards money and achievement and accomplishment. And that's not sustainable for any of us. We're not machines. One of my goals for this month, I set goals for myself every month. One of my goals for this month was to rest. It was like my number two goal for the month. So every week when I'm looking at planning my week, I have to keep in mind, how am I honoring this goal to rest? And that's meant that I've had several days where there's stuff on my to-do list that still needs to get done. And I check in with my body and I notice I'm exhausted. And I tell myself instead, all right, well, today I'm just going to do some knitting because that'll feel really nice for me. 
and I'm going to watch a new series on Netflix. And that's going to be my day because my body is telling me that I need rest. So it's just listening to our emotional world and our needs and allowing ourselves to slow down. Yeah. And get in touch with that. Allowing yourself to waste time. <laughs> it's okay to waste time. Because like even the phrase waste time implies that like somehow our time has a cost or a monetary value associated with it. If wasting time is about you resting because you're tired, that's not a waste. Resting right now during this kind of a global trauma is healing. That is work. It is active, hard work to survive right now. Surviving can look like spending the whole day watching TV or playing video games. That is important work for this time. Resting during global trauma is healing. There's a meditation dialogue where some people are asking this famous teacher, they're like, do you meditate in your free time? And he just laughed at this concept. All time, you're free to use as you want to. And we in the West have designed this time that we have to be working. And then this other time that's okay to relax. But like any time that we need to give love and rest and meditate or pray or do whatever it is that we need for our own meaning and dignity and happiness in our lives is time that should be utilized as such. Well, and the idea that work time even as it was initially structured, was ever fully productive time is an utter and complete fallacy. When we research like how much actual work people get done during a day, <laughs> even in 40-hour-a-week jobs, it's about three to five hours a day at most. The system was set up for people in higher-level jobs who were then going to be straight, cis, white men who were relatively able to be able to spend a lot of time kind of doing less aggressively exerting things and for people below them to make up for that lack of effort in greater and greater degrees. Hmm. But even then, people have always had plenty of time at work where there's kind of nothing for them to do for a little bit and you still get paid anyway. That's part of it. I think that one of the biggest erosions of what life is like for workers during COVID has been this way in which companies have started talking about like workers stealing work time because they aren't 100% productive during their working hours when that's never been the truth in an office anyway. You get to rest whenever you want to. Even while you're at work, even while you're doing other things, you still get to choose to rest. It's true. I'm, I'm reminded of the Amazon workers who have to pee in bottles because they have quotas to meet and and security cameras monitoring every view in case they're going to relax for even the slightest moment. Well, and particularly for that to be from Amazon, where Jeff Bezos is a centibillionaire and extracting so much capital from the labor of those beneath him in some of the worst conditions that we have in the United States. If we had people working in those conditions in another country, everyone would rightly call them sweatshops. The ways that people who work at Amazon are treated are not that significantly different than the workers in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire is one of the things that we talk about as how we started a movement towards workers' rights. Like, there have been so many steps backwards in terms of how we protect the people who are laboring in these economies. You know, we started talking about self-love, but now I feel like we're ready to start a revolution. <laughs> I, look... The only reason that I don't actively advocate for revolution is because the people who die in revolutions aren't the people at the top. If a revolution broke out tomorrow, Jeff Bezos would be safe because his money will shield him. He will get out. He'll go to a safe, lovely private island or a beautiful, well-furnished bunker. Even if there was nuclear winter tomorrow, Jeff Bezos would be one of the cockroaches who could make it through. He is of the class that is protected no matter what happens within a country revolutions, when they kill people, they kill the people who are at the lowest rungs. They kill the people who are the least privileged. I think that part of what revolution can look like in a different way is the ways that we all start pushing back against expectations, particularly as we ally with each other. You know, buildings that during the coronavirus that have come together to organize rent strikes in organized ways have been able to achieve amazing things. There have been buildings who have fought back against slumlords and gotten the ability to purchase their own buildings out from under them to create better living situations for themselves. I think this is how we start shifting these things. And 
it's easier to start those things when we view our own worth and value and we honor it. When we celebrate ourselves and love ourselves, it's easier to push back against those who refuse to honor our humanity and refuse to honor our wholeness. It's funny because often we'll say that self-love is important in a one-to-one intimate relationship because if you have low self-esteem, you end up in a worse relationship because you choose somebody who trying to, who treats you poorly. And now you're talking about like almost a global scale or governmental scale is that once we acknowledge and recognize our dignity and self-love and put up healthy boundaries, those boundaries will also be between us and corporate structures and us and the government. Yeah. I mean, the way you do one thing is often the way you do many things. Part of why therapy relationships work is that who we are in our lives shows up in the relationship we have with our therapist as well. It is the relationship that is also a component of the healing. Similarly, when we work at loving ourselves for the sake of our own health, it translates into the ways that we interact with others in our families, in our romantic and sexual relationships, in our friendships. When we are stuck in this place of smallness and of trying to be what others want, it's easier for friends to take advantage of us or for family to take advantage of us or for romantic partners to take advantage of us. When we center our wholeness, when we focus on honoring ourselves, we find that that change within us helps to start creating shifts and ripples within the systems that we find ourselves. When we are stuck in a place of smallness, it's easier for people to take advantage of us. You know, I never really thought of that as applying to all the relationships in our lives, including the structures that be. I'm I'm on board with your <laughs> idea that sel- that sex can change the world. <laughs> yeah, I, I see the path now to a new kind of revolution that begins with ourselves, and I see how self love now can change the world. Because when we step into our self love, of course, we will no longer put up with behaviors and structures that do not reiterate our worthiness and deservingness of love and peace and happiness. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about these changes also is that they take time. For a lot of people, they can't make the choice to just quit their job that treats them poorly. They might be able to start to form unions to try to help get collective representation, which is one of the best ways to challenge corporate structures that are problematic. They might be able to find better supports within their life so that they can endure through jobs that are not treating them well. And I think that that's part of this balance aspect as well, is when we honor ourselves and care about ourselves, we're able to more clearly make decisions about how we can get through things that we have less choice about. I'm someone who is friends with a lot of sex workers. And there's a fascinating thing that anti-sex work people talk about, which is that sex work is selling your body. I don't see how sex work is selling your body in any more meaningful of a way than having to work at this Amazon plant and pee in bottles. I think that all of us are selling... All the coal mines and get black lung. Right. Or, you know, working in... Uh, meat processing plants or in agriculture, right? There are so many people who within this system of capitalism are forced to sell some aspect of their body or their psyche in order for them to be able to eat food and have a home. That is how the system is set up. None of us are in fully consensual labor under this system for the most part because there isn't an option in which we just say we don't. We don't live, especially in the States, in a country where you can just say, I'm not in a place where I can work right now and you can be okay. Uh, you know, I have a friend who's been applying for disability. It's been years that she's been in the process and it's still ongoing and she still doesn't know if she's going to get it. And that's for someone who has very significant medical issues we have to have the ability to honor and love ourselves so that we can figure out how to endure the things that we can't opt out of yet or the things that we don't have the power to structurally change yet so that we can continue to move through and survive and make those marginal smaller changes as we move through time. Absolutely. Self-love is a form of resiliency in a world that doesn't prioritize love and dignity for all people. So, wow, this hour has just flown by. I'm, 
And I did learn some really wonderful advice on self-love and I'm ready to start the revolution. So thank you so much, Dr. Liz, for coming on to the show. And I want to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? So for this, I'm actually going to refer to Bell Hooks in her book, All About Love. And I think that I, I wish everyone knew about love that we do best when we think of love as a verb rather than a noun. When we focus on what it is to be loving rather than to feel love. Because when we focus on love as a verb, it requires more of us. It requires an accountability and a responsibility. It asks us to show up and to do something that is in alignment with that emotion. Whereas when we allow it to just be a noun, it's this passive thing that happens to us that we have no control over. And I think that makes it much easier for us to accept toxic versions of relationship and love. Beautiful. Love is a verb and not a noun. And we can choose to bring it into our lives in so many ways. Thank you so much, Dr. Liz, for coming on to the show and sharing us all your insight and wisdom and radical love, which is really just the love we should all be integrating into our lives. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? My website is drlizpowell.com. On there, you can find all kinds of stuff that I have available. So I have a variety of online classes. Uh, depending upon when you're listening to this, you might be able to sign up for my newest class. My newest class is a six-week email course called New Year's Explorations. It's all about starting 2021 with a bunch of love and joy and pleasure and tuning into ourselves. But even if you're listening to it after that, I have classes like Unfuck Your Polyamory with Kevin Patterson, which is our six-week course on how to really get ethical and get into polyamory in a way that's beautiful for everybody involved. I also have a class called Declutter Your Dating Life. That's about cutting out those connections that aren't feeding you. Uh, and my book, Building Open Relationships, is on there as well. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Liz Powell. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, though that hasn't been updated as much recently. Coronavirus has sucked me of the will to make video content, <laughs> as I'm sure many of you understand. Uh, and I have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Dr. Liz. Wonderful. That's okay. We all totally understand your need to rest because we all have the same need to break out of the toxic hustle culture. So thank you so much, Liz, for sharing your offerings. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you now recognize not only that sex can change the world because all the skills for great sex overlap into all the other areas of our life, but also that self-love will change the world too. If you think that you're struggling with self-love, don't worry, you're not alone. There are entire structures designed to keep you productive, to keep you feeling judgmental for even such a thing as resting and relaxing and attending to your emotional needs. So love yourself, set up healthy, safe, and life-serving boundaries, and celebrate all the little and big things in your life. If you listen to this podcast, that's a great thing. If you got up and did the laundry, that's a great thing. If you were able to cook your own meal and eat it, that's a great thing. Celebrate any and all big and small activities in your life as part of your self-love practice. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Liz. Thank you so much, Zach, for having me. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 